Good morning, church family. The scripture reading for this morning is James 5, 1 through 6, found on page 1013 in your pew Bible. James 5, 1 through 6. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasures in the last days. Behold the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in the day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous person. He does not resist you. This is the word of God. We have been studying the New Testament book of James. We're in the final chapter of this letter written by James the pastor in Jerusalem. Writing to help Christians understand how to live out their faith in all aspects of life. James has said some, already said some really hard things about our words, about our struggle with being partial, impartiality, the conflict in our relationships. But here in this text before us, James reserves his strongest rebuke for the unrighteous rich. Not just any rich but those who profess to worship God, but in fact worship money. So today's message is rejecting the love of money. And just like that, with the mention of one word, money, I have entered into dangerous territory. I know that as soon as a pastor a preacher starts talking about money, red flags go up for many of you. And believe me, I probably wouldn't be preaching on this text ever had it not been the next passage in the book of James. Many people are uncomfortable and even suspicious of ministers who talk about money, and, I, and part of that is completely justified. There are preachers who are asking for your money, promising prosperity, if you give, all the while they get rich, plundering the vulnerable. And so I get it that I'm pushing against the tide. Not only that, here at Grace, we know that every week we have people who are at various stages of their spiritual journey. There, there's always someone here who's, who's wrestling with trying to come to grips with who is Jesus? What does it mean to, to be a Christian? Do I want to follow Christ? Do I want to be a Christian? And if that describes you, the temptation might be to think that, that this message is somehow counterproductive or a distraction from the core message of Christianity. But according to Pastor James, how you view money will directly impact your ability to live out true faith in Christ. So let me just say this. First of all, 
If you're new here, maybe you're not a Christian, maybe you're, you're, you're like, we're trying church for the first time in weeks, months, years, and here it is. It go, if, go figure. It happens, I know it. Please know I'm not asking for your money. Second, did you know that there are literally thousands of verses in the Bible that talk about our money and our possessions? Jesus himself talked about money and possessions more than he talked about other topics like heaven and hell or prayer and faith. Why? Why is that the case? Because God knows that how we relate to money is a clear indication of the condition of our hearts. That's why Jesus said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. And then a few verses later, that's why he says, you cannot serve both God and money. Do you understand this morning that no matter where you are spiritually, no matter what your income level is, that money is one of the chief competitors for your heart's allegiance? James has been teaching us what it looks like to live humbly before God. He's been nailing this, this, this theme in, and now he turns to the topic of money, specifically the love of money. And he says very clearly he's talking to the rich. Some scholars think he's talking about the unbelievers who aren't even in the church, kind of the rich out there. But that would be tr- strange because they would likely never even read this letter. Why would he be talking to them? I think James is speaking to those in the midst who who will hear this letter being read, those who profess to be Christians, but their love of money contradicts that profession. James is showing us that apart from the grace of God, this is what the love of money will do to us. And so really, I want you to understand that this is a warning for every one of us to humbly examine our own hearts to see if we are loving money more than God. And if you're here and you're tempted to think, I'm not rich, whoo, that's for those two to three people who are rich. No, no. I can tell you, I can show you stats that show that if you live in America, if you live in anywhere near this area, if you have a job, if you're making a certain income, which is like 30 or $35,000 or more, you're part of the richest one or 2% of people in the world. Most, many of us not only have houses for our people, we have houses for our vehicles. I mean, that's rich. We spend more on our, on our pets than most people spend on their, themselves daily. I'm not criticizing, I'm just saying that's just the reality. This is a warning for every one of us to examine our hearts to see if there is if we're loving money more than God. Let's get right into it. Lesson number one. I'll state the negative that James is saying, and then I want to state it positively. Loving money will lead to hoarding, but the gospel will turn you into a conduit of blessing. Look at verse one again. Come now, you rich, weep and howl for the miseries that are coming upon you. When James says, come now, that's his way of saying, listen up. 
Take heed, beware. And he says, weep and howl. Those two words together are frequently used by the Old Testament prophets to describe the wicked when the day of the Lord comes. When the day of judgment comes. In fact, the word howl is only found in the prophets and is always in the context of judgment. What this tells us is that when James speaks of the miseries that are coming upon you, he's not referring to suffering here on earth. He's not saying you're going to get yours here and now. No, he's referring to the punishment, the judgment to come that God will pronounce on that final day when every one of us stands before the Lord. If you have rejected Christ, if the love of money is what defined your life, if that's what you pursued, he said this will be your judgment. And you better weep and howl now for the judgment that will be coming. There are those who are wealthy who often view their wealth as a means of avoiding pain, avoiding suffering. Isn't that how, honestly, many of us think about wealth? As a means of living a life of greater ease, of greater comfort. Wealth is a protection against the tragedies of life. But James offers a sobering warning. He says, listen, you can think that all you want about wealth on this earth, but your wealth alone cannot save you from the judgment to come. Now, let me say this. The Bible never condemns people for being wealthy. Did you know that? Even back in James 1.11, when, when James first brings up the rich, he says, he calls on the rich to boast in their humiliation. Meaning, don't let your riches give you an inflated view of self. What you do find in Scripture are numerous warnings and condemnations of misusing wealth, not having wealth. Using money selfishly. Are you listening? Pop quiz. Does the Bible say money is the root of all evil? No. But man, you, we can get that confused real quick. It's the love of money that is the root of all kinds of evil, 1 Timothy 6. So the harsh words found here are a warning to those who are using money in ungodly ways, those for whom the love of money has gripped their hearts. Again, this isn't about the money itself. What is money? It's just paper or plastic, isn't it? That's all it is. We don't love money. We love what money represents. Money represents power and status and freedom and security and protection. And because it represents all of those incredible things, Jesus uses words to describe things like don't be devoted to money. Don't love money. You can't love God and money. He uses strong terms to describe our struggle with money because more than almost anything else in the world, money has the ability to draw your affection and loyalty away from Christ onto money, onto something else. And that's why James starts by saying, come now, listen up, beware. And he says the first symptom of loving money is that you begin to hoard it. Verse 2 Your riches have rotted and your garments are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have corroded and their corrosion will be evidence against you and, and will eat your flesh like fire. You have laid up treasure in the last days. 
What's he saying? He's saying no matter how much you can afford, no matter how nice things you can have, the word for rot is the word talking about food. He's saying even fancy food will rot. Even expensive clothes will wear out. Even precious metals will tarnish. James is pointing out the foolishness of centering our lives on accumulating more and more earthly possessions. He's warning them, you've got stockpiles of food and clothing and and jewelry. And he's like, "But, but what is it doing? It's just showing you that you're hoarding it. You're keeping it for yourself. And James is warning us all on the dangers of hoarding. You see, the strange thing about money is that the more you get, the more you come to depend on it. And the more you depend on it, the more of it you start to think you need. And that's when hoarding takes over. When you start to love money, you don't know, you never know if you have enough. You say, How do you know this so well, Mark? Well, because I, 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 am, I tend to hoarding. I don't have large stockpiles of money, but it's little things. I want to keep this. I want to, just in case I need this. Our, I told you about the mess in our garage and how my wife will clean it out every other year and then I build it back up with messes. I hoard all kinds of junk and she throws it all out for us. Slowly, money begins to take the place of God in your life it, because it, beca- it becomes your precious. And when that, happens, when that happens, you can't help but hold on to as much of it as you possibly can. James 12, or sorry, Luke 12. Akin mentioned this last week, this story that Jesus is approached by a man who's upset that his brother has not divided or, or, or given out the inheritance as he was supposed to. And this brother's upset and he goes to Jesus and says, can you, figure, can you square this out for us? I want my share of the inheritance. And, uh, and Jesus' first words are, watch out. Be on your guard against all kinds of greed. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. His first words are words of warning to this guy. And then Jesus tells this parable, this story of a rich man who had more than he needed. His crops did well. He had a bumper crop. Praise God, that's awesome. Nothing wrong with that. But what he does with it is what's wrong. He he says, I don't even know what to do with it. I have so much. He didn't even consider that God had given him more than he needs so that he could share with those who could use it. And so he says, instead, I'm going to build bigger barns and and, and house more and hoard it all selfishly, and then I'm going to go to a beach and eat, drink, and be merry. And then Jesus says, God says to that man, you fool. This very night your life will be demanded from you. Then who will get what you have prepared for yourself? And Jesus looks to all of them and says, this is how it'll be for anyone who stores up things for himself but is not rich toward God. It's instructive that Jesus' warning against greed is for the man who doesn't even have any of the inheritance yet. Meaning you can love money without having a lot of it. Lest you think this passage is just for the rich, let Jesus remind you, you don't have anything and you can still love money. You can still be gripped by the love of money. 
What we see here is Jesus condemning both the rich man in the parable and the broke man wanting his share of the inheritance. Why? Because both of them thought money was the answer to their problem. And both of them were wrong. They both had fallen into the trap of seeking to hoard money. Hoarding. Hoarding money is a lack of trust in God. Hoarding itself is a lack of trust in God. It's a sign that your, your trust has migrated from God who has promised to give you what you need to thinking that money will give you what you think you need. Now, does that mean that all saving for the future is hoarding? No. The Bible is against hoarding, not saving. Dozens of passages I could bring up. Here's just one. Numerous Proverbs talk about the wisdom of saving for the future. The Proverbs say, Go to the ant, you sluggard. Consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer or ruler. Yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers its food at harvest. He's saying, look and be wise. There's a time for storing up and there's a time for using it. The issue is not saving for the future. Why do you save? Why do you save? To use it, right? The purpose of saving is to use that money. The purpose of hoarding is to keep that money. Are you and I saving with the posture of James 4.15 where he just said to us a few verses earlier, you should say, if the Lord wills. In other words, are you doing all that you're doing with your resources and money with an open hand for God to direct your resources however he chooses, whatever way he chooses, and in whatever timing he chooses? And you'll say, well, then where's the line between saving and hoarding? Show me the line. We all want a line, right? Well, the Bible doesn't tell us. And be glad for that. Or else you would turn yet another thing in your life into a law in order to justify yourself before God. Now, there's no line. He didn't give us a line. I don't know where it is for you, but I can tell you this. You must humbly seek it out. You must seek wise counsel. Do you need that car? Should you buy this house? How much should you spend on clothes and, or education or whatever it is? Listen, you need wisdom, wisdom from above and, and, and godly counsel from those around you. Do other people know what you're spending and what you're doing with your money? I've told you in the past, I've sent my tax returns to my two closest friends and I'm just saying, I, just, I want you to know, here's how much I made, here's how much I've given, here's how much I owe to the government. I want you to, it's all, it's all open for you. Because it's easy for me to be so, to hide it, to feel like it's mine. I do what I want. I do what I think is best. No, no, it's not mine anyway. The opposite of hoarding is giving freely. If a, if a picture of hoarding, if you want to picture what hoarding is like, picture a stale and stagnant swamp. Nothing comes in, nothing goes out. It's just sitting. It's dank and dirty. That's hoarding. A picture of generosity, a picture of living in light of the gospel is a conduit of blessing, a channel of blessing, water flowing, flowing in and flowing out. It's like a spring. It keeps flowing. It's fresh. It's clean. It's, it's virus, full of life. 
Don't you see if God has entrusted you with abundance, it's because he wants to use you as a conduit of provision and blessing to others. Listen, what if the blessing of wealth is not to keep more of it, but to give more of it away? When you give freely and generously, you get to experience the joy of participating in the work of God to bless others. And it gives others who don't have as much the joy of learning to cheerfully and humbly depend on God for all things. We'll come back to that in lesson three. Lesson number two that James gives us in this text. Loving money will lead you to cheat others, but the gospel calls you to fulfill your obligations. James continues in his indictment by showing us that loving money, verse four, lead you to cheat others. Behold, the wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, are crying out against you, and the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. In James' day, landowners would have day laborers who would work their fields. And according to the law in Deuteronomy 24, 14 and 15, God commanded landowners to pay their workers at the end of every single day. Every single day, you pay that worker what they earned. Why? Because they needed it to live that day. We do it, you know, every other week or twice a month or whatever at the end of the week. No. And so, but, but what they would do is some landowners back then, they would wait long periods of time to, to pay their workers. And they would justify it by saying, I'm supposed to pay you when the work is done. Well, the work isn't done until the harvest has all gotten in. So you're going to have to wait many months and then I'll pay you. And for the rich person, that delay might not seem like a big deal. Listen, if I got a cool mill in the bank, then you owing me a hundred bucks isn't a big deal. I can float that for a couple weeks. But listen, if I live off of two, three dollars a day and I make two to three dollars a day, I need my wages at the end of that day to feed my family. It would be disaster for me to not get paid. James is warning on a number of levels. He's saying, listen, affluence can lead to carelessness and insensitivity towards the needs of others in different income brackets. Affluence can lead to carelessness and, and insensitivity towards the needs of others in different income brackets. But James is not just saying that. He goes further. He's condemning their fraud and their injustice. He's saying, you're defrauding the people who work for you. You're cheating them. And he, what is he saying? He's not just saying that. He's saying, their cries are going out against you. Their cries are reaching up to God. He's saying, listen, listen carefully. God cares about the poor, about those who have very little, and about the oppressed. Entire books of the Bible, like the Old Testament prophet book of Amos, were written to show us this is the heart of God. It may seem like no one notices when the needy and vulnerable are taken advantage of, but James is telling us, and Amos tells us, and Hosea tells us, and, all, and from beginning to end, God tells us, I see and I care. I hear their cries. Notice, the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. That language goes back to the Israelites when they were enslaved in Egypt. 
And every day they were crying out to God, crying out to Yahweh. And it says in Exodus that the, that the ears of the Lord, that the cries of the people reached the ears of the Lord. And he heard them and he responded and he rescued. This is a warning to the rich and a comfort to the poor. The Lord of hosts is the term James uses. That means the Lord of armies. It pictures God leading a vast army on behalf of his people. If you've been taken advantage of by those who are greedy for ill gain, maybe you, maybe you fell into a, a scam by an internet email or someone, someone has taken advantage of you, someone did the job and, 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 and they, you didn't get paid, whatever the case may be, you can know that the Lord of hosts is on your side and will fight for ultimate justice. On the flip side, is there someone you owe right now? I'm just going to bring it as far down as I can, as practical as I can. Is there someone you owe right now? Why delay? Why delay? Are you trying to get out of paying? Are you hoping they won't remember? I had to send, here's confession for me, I had to send a check in the mail yesterday. Because I had forgotten to pay someone who had done some work in our home months ago. And as I was praying through this, reading through this, asking God, I, I, I don't think I'm cheating anybody, but and all of a sudden the Lord brought it to mind. You forgot! This is me! I'm writing a check. Lord, forgive me. What was I? Well, how did I forget? Because I was, th- I was being insensitive to the needs of that person, of that company. Christian, are you fulfilling your financial obligations to others? If you're in a position where you employ others, are you paying them a livable wage? You say, Mark, isn't that political? Isn't it, are you talking? No, I'm, t- I'm preaching the Bible. Do you hear me talking about anything else other than the Bible? If you've been wronged by someone else or an employer, can you trust God, the righteous judge, to bring justice in that situation in his time and in his way? That's, in fact, the very next passage. We'll talk about that whole concept, verses 7 to 12. Lesson number three. Loving money will make you self-indulgent, but the gospel invites you to enjoy God's provision and invest generously in his kingdom. The final indictment here is that the love of money causes the rich to live self-indulgent lives. Verse 5, you have lived on the earth in luxury and in self-indulgence. You have fattened your hearts in a day of slaughter. Again, he's talking to the ungodly rich, those who are living in the lap of luxury, indulging in pleasures that they think would satisfy all their deepest desires, but what they didn't realize is that their selfish gorging was actually preparing them for a greater judgment. This is a warning for every one of us. It is so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that that we are the center of the universe. That's what he's saying. That's what, when you live self-indulgently, when I live self, what are we saying? We're saying it's all about my wants, right? I'm in the center. It's about my wants, my career, my company, my 401k, my dreams, my desires, mine, 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 mine. And all of a sudden, it's all about me thinking that we're the center and everything revolves around us. I have, I have some better news for you. Jesus is the center, not you. 
Life becomes so focused on accumulating all the possessions that we can or soaking up all the experiences. And James says, wake up. Wake up. You're not the center. You don't exist, exist to promote your little kingdom, but to expand God's eternal kingdom. That's what will bring you ultimate and lasting joy. Well, how do we break free from self-indulgence? Do we just give it all away? Do we live austere lives, right? Asceticism? No, God is not a divine killjoy. We know that God created everything and said it is good. When, when Paul, here's, here's, what I'm, here's the lesson you need to take. When Paul speaks to the rich in 1 Timothy 6, when he speaks specific to the rich, just like James does, he doesn't say stop being rich. Look, as for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty, not to be arrogant, nor to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. He doesn't call the rich to repent of being wealthy or to sell it all. Why? Because wealth itself, again, is not a bad thing. He simply says, first of all, don't be proud because that's a, a strong temptation to be rich. And second of all, don't set your hope on money, right? Don't let it, give, don't let it be the thing that, that gives you a sense of security. Instead, set your hope on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. Literally, the Bible is commanding you to enjoy what God has given you. Do you have a job? Do you make some level of income? Are you retired and, you, and you're earning from what you had saved up in your, your career already? Enjoy it. Some of you need to hear that. Enjoy it. Celebrate a birthday. Take a vacation or a staycation. Pursue that hobby with healthy limits. Enjoy what you earn with those around you. Take the family out to dinner and do it all with gratitude in your hearts to God for his bountiful provision. The opposite of self-indulgence is not to take it all away and don't do anything valuable or enjoyable. No, it's to enjoy what God has given you as a fact that he has given it to you and it's not yours. But, but, but Paul doesn't stop there in, in, in the instructions to the rich. He says, also teach them to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Paul calls on those who have more to do more and to give more. And you say, that makes sense, right? To whom much is given, much is acquired. We, we, we think that intuitively, we know that makes sense. The problem is, studies consistently show that the more Americans make, the less they give by percentage. Why? Why? Because as the wealth builds, their hope migrates and their hands close. We need that wealth to feel secure. Don't you see the one thing that can guard your heart against greed, the one thing that can defend your heart against the lie that your life is defined by what you have or how much you make, the one thing that can change that is the lifestyle of generous giving and generous living. Because giving is an act of faith. It reminds us that all we have belongs to God and is from God. 
So it's an act of faith. Giving is also an act of hope. It reminds us that we get our sense of value, not from our lifestyle, but from God himself. And giving is an act of love. Because love drives us to meet the needs of others and and drives us to spread the gospel. And listen, generous living is extremely attractive. If you read about the early church in Acts, you see Christians giving away resources, giving away money in astonishing proportions to help other Christians in need and to spread the gospel. And it was their radical generosity that amazed the people around them and proved that a real change had taken place in their lives. And it drew many people to trust in Christ. So let me just say, this is the most generous church I've ever been a part of. You faithfully give week in and week out to advance the gospel here and around the world. Members all the time giving their, giving their resources, using their time generously, using their money to serve others when they're hurting. Someone needs a car, well, we can donate. We can help make that happen. Someone needs their rent covered, we can help out with that. Someone needs meals, we, we're on that. Someone needs medical bills paid, we'll help with that. Someone needs rides to doctor's appointments, we'll help with that. I mean, th- this has all just happened in the last few months. And sometimes I hear things and they're like, did you know? I'm like, no, I didn't even know that happened. People are serving and loving one another and it doesn't have to go through us. Praise God for that. You shine the love of Jesus, church, and I'm proud to be a part of this church. Whenever I talk about giving, I also want you to know that I don't ask you to do anything that my family is not committed to doing already. That Danny Beth and I seek to live by a motto that God prospers us not to raise our standard of living but to raise our standard of giving. Ever since we got married, we decided we would start by giving 10% to our local church. And as the Lord provided more, we would gradually increase that percentage every year. And by God's grace, we have. Here, listen, is it hard? Yes. Do we always get it right? No. Do I need more help than my wife does? Yes. But we desperately want Jesus to be our greatest treasure, not our money. James ends this section with this interesting cryptic statement in verse 6. He says, You have condemned and murdered the righteous person, and he does not resist you. It is very likely that these rich people were so wicked that their evil practices did lead to the death of truly righteous people. Maybe they weren't allowed to go to court and have their court cases heard. Maybe they literally starved to death because their employers did not pay them. But there's something interesting and unique about this verse because it says, look, you have condemned and murdered the righteous person. It's singular. If you look at it in the Greek, it's not righteous people, not righteous persons. It's singular. One person. Not only that, if he was talking about a poor person, he would say, and that person could not resist you. Meaning they had no ability to resist you. But it says he does not resist you. Meaning it's voluntary. What on earth is James talking about here? This is an interpretive issue. And I am convinced that James, the brother of Jesus, whose words so closely align to those of Jesus, is right here alluding to Jesus. Why are we ultimately so concerned about money? 
Why do we struggle with, with hoarding? Why do we want to step on others to get ahead? Why are we so self-indulgent and selfish with our money? It's because we have forgotten Jesus, the righteous one who was condemned and murdered for us. We have forgotten the one who was betrayed because of the love of money. For 30 pieces of silver. You say, money, this, the, the focus on the gospel. Jesus was murdered because of the love of money. That's how serious it is. We have lost sight of the one who willingly died for us. You see, when Jesus died on the cross, did he give you a tithe? Did he give you a portion? No, he gave all of himself. The one who had it all. He had glory. He had beauty. He had security. He had power. He had love. He had joy. He had peace. Everything, by the way, we think money can give us, Jesus already had. And what did he do with all that wealth? He didn't hoard it. He didn't self-indulge himself. He literally said, I'm going to give it all up. I'm going to lay it all down. I'm going to come to earth. The, the king of all creation becomes the lowliest servant and slave, and he has no home to lay his head, and he doesn't know where the next meal is going to come from. The king becomes a beggar for you. The Holy One became a sin bearer for you. He became poor so that you could become rich spiritually, so that you could experience all the wealth of His glory and beauty and security and power and love and joy. And and James is saying, remember Jesus on the cross. Remember Him dying so you can live, suffering so that you could go free. And let the beauty and power of God's grace grip your heart that he gave his son for you. Marvel at this goodness, Christian. You deserve nothing, have been given everything. And it didn't cost you anything because it cost him everything. He took the judgment that these rich were going to experience. He took the judgment that you and I should have received And now we stand forgiven, not guilty. Listen, when you see Jesus making you his treasure, and when you remember that, more and more Jesus becomes your greatest treasure. That's the gospel of grace. That's unconditional love for undeserving people like us. And the more the gospel of grace sinks into your heart, the more you will reject the love of money and you'll, and you'll pursue a love of God that is generous with all that you have. Listen, if you're not a Christian today, what you need most is a Savior. Turn to Jesus. Whatever you've been holding on to, I don't know if it's money, I don't know if it's something, a relationship, I don't know what it is. Whatever it is, lay it down and let Jesus be that thing in your hand because he's the only one who died for you and can never be taken away. Wealth will leave, finding, uh, your relationships will leave, your beauty will leave, but Jesus will never leave you nor forsake you. Christian, remember the one who gave so generously to you even when you were his enemy and he didn't resist it. Remember him. Keep giving him the right to be the center of your life and let him change your attitude about everything, including your money. Together, let's love money. Let's love God. Let's love God and not money. Let's pray. Father, we need you. We need you because this 
is such a sensitive area in our hearts and in our lives. We need you because we put so much energy and emotion into what we have. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of thinking that what we have defines who we are. Lord, I pray for every single one who is listening. Wherever they are financially, wherever they are spiritually, pray that they would remember Jesus, that they would look to the cross and see you giving everything willingly. You didn't, you didn't blink for a second. You did it because you loved us. Why did you love us? Because you loved us. Show us your glory, the glory of, of sharing, the, glorious, the glory of generous living, that we might follow in your footsteps, Jesus. Lord, in this morning, I pray you would remind us that no matter what we give up, it's nothing compared to what we get when we see you face to face. Remind us this morning. Some of us need a reminder. We've been sacrificing. We've been giving. Some of us have given up so much for your kingdom and we're wondering, God, is it worth it? Have I made a mistake? Lord, help us remember that first moment of seeing you will immediately be worth the years of suffering, the years of sacrifice, the years of pain in that first moment. Oh, glory. All glory. Thank you that this is what our dear sister Martha is experiencing right now. Glory upon glory. Freedom. All the things that she knew you could give, she's experiencing. God, show us today all the things that we think money or something else could give. We just want to lay it down this morning. We just want to leave it right here and say, Jesus, we reaffirm you are better. You satisfy. We may die, but only you can give life. Oh Lord, this is our story. It always has been, always will be. This is the story of Grace Baptist Church. This, this church in this town, mostly unknown globally, but you have shined your face upon us. God, keep doing it that we might keep being a blessing and be conduits a blessing for your glory, for the salvation of those who need Christ, and for the beauty of your church being ready and be made ready for your return. We pray in Christ's name. Amen.